In the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul sets us up in regards to the gospel. And you probably would have guessed this by now because our relationship has blossomed to some consistencies. One of them is me asking you questions from the week prior when it comes to seemingly vital information. This is vital information. There were four basic points to the gospel. So you say, you know, you know the gospel. Could you tell me what those are? The first was that Jesus died for our sins according to Scripture. Okay, let's try that again so you can actually sound like you all know and not just the five of you over there. Okay, what's the first one? Okay, awesome. And the second one, the second one was really, remember, very difficult. What was it? He was buried. Yeah, that's it. What was the third one? According to scriptures. Yes. He rose again on the third day, according to scriptures. And then what was the fourth one? Seen by lots of people. That was it. Jesus died for your sins, according to scripture. He was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to scripture. And then he was seen by lots of people. That's the gospel that Paul says, according to Romans 1, 16, 17, is the power of salvation, power of God to salvation for anyone who would believe. It doesn't say your ability to argue. It doesn't say your ability to convince. It doesn't say what gifts or talents, whether you're socially gifted or the biggest geek in the world. Because God could use a donkey. He could make the stones cry out. The only difference between them and you is you have a will. So if God just said to the rock, speak, it isn't going to say, why? I'm afraid the other rocks won't like me. Now we get to the point of our text, although that's enough in itself. Look at verse 12 with us now as we pick it up. Now, if Christ is preached that he is raised from the dead, notice, by the way, that was our third of our fourth points, right? In, in essence, third and fourth point of the gospel. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he has raised up Christ. So if he didn't raise up, if in fact the dead don't rise... For if the dead do not rise, well, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Or we might say pitiful. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you so much for the simple, beautiful, profound clarity of your word. Thank you that your word is still active, still alive, sharper than a double-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning even the intent thoughts of our heart. Thank you that your word, like the water or the snow, falls to the ground and does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands upon. 
causing it to bud and flourish, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats. So is your word. It never returns to you empty. So here is this active sword of your spirit being wielded by your spirit to carve off and to separate the good from the bad or the necessary, Lord, to separate those things that seem even inseparable because somehow we've grayed matter that shouldn't be. And you have a mission for your word tonight. A mission for every one of us to be a part of. Thank you, Lord, that there are enough operating gurneys, operating beds for every one of us spiritually to lie upon tonight for you to do the surgery that is necessary, which isn't always just removing nasty things, but sometimes it's planting in healthier things. And Lord, we pray tonight that we will receive everything you offer us tonight. The peace, the joy, the strength, the clarity, the hope. Lord, that tonight we find ourselves anchored like we should be, just as we should be. And thank you, Lord, that you are going to redeem every second. Even now, you're redeeming every second to make it yours. So, Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit. Fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit that they would see you. That they would hear you. That they would know you. That they would love you. Even as you've done with me and continue to do with me. That we would be brought to such a state of overflow. That we would find ourselves not just changed, but revolutionized. Incurably and wonderfully infected with your love and contagious. So have your way now, Lord, I pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. This beautiful, infallible book is there for you to hold accountable everything you hear. If people had done that, all of those crazy, insane doctrines that are out there, toted by people who have, it's just that we blink twice and still can't believe it happens. They wouldn't, they'd cease to be, at least they'd cease to be followed if we just opened up this book and looked at it. And here is one of those areas. There are some things that are just not debatable. Please hear me. In my household, my kids are smart. Dang it. Well, it's good in a lot of ways until they want something you don't want to give them. And they both know, they, all, they both have their tools, their wit and their charm and their whatever, their emotions, their intensity. We all have those. We all have our weapons of manipulation to get what we want. But there is a term in our household that's been used since they were younger than they were able to speak. And the term is non-negotiable. 
It's interesting because when it comes to non-negotiable, there's no argument. Now, you think I'd use it more, but I really don't. And the purpose is because I want them to realize there are some things that are just, it's not worth talking about. There's no possible way you're going to do anything but waste our time. The purpose of that is to say the issue of the resurrection is non-negotiable. And that is why Paul is flabbergasted as he writes to this church he planted five years ago. He's not there now, and he hears that they're debating over this issue, and he kind of looks and rubs his eyes and goes, what? Now, why would that happen? Why would a church like this be debating over it? In the book of Acts, chapter 23, verse 8, we read about a group of people called the Sadducees. Perhaps you're familiar with them. If you want to hear any jokes about them, ask Mario later. But please understand, let me give you a little bit of background for a moment, because when we dive into this text, it'll actually roll fairly smoothly. There'll be three very simple things that will be developed in regards to the necessity of this, this, uh, this um, resurrection. Many of you are aware of the fact that there was a time in Jewish history when the Jewish nation, the 12 tribes, were actually split. It happened after Solomon. Solomon, with a divided heart, left a legacy of a divided kingdom. Ten tribes in the north took a new capital. That capital was Samaria, for which then they would be called, well, ultimately, there would be a people that would populate from there, interspersed with other countries, that would be called Samaritans. That was the capital of the northern kingdom, and they called themselves Israel. The southern kingdoms that remained, by the way, the southern tribes really, to be honest, were really just the, uh, Judah, those of Judah, those of Benjamin, and the renegades that actually sought to be true from the Levites. Now, you're, maybe you're aware of the fact that the term Judah, which means praise, um, is where shortened and ultimately derivated is where we get the term Jew from today. So Jew comes from Judah. It's kind of the idea. Now, the northern kingdom had for what it's worth, had 19 kings, every one of them rotten, nasty, terrible, and none of them worshiping the living God. And ultimately, they would be taken captive by Assyria for what it's worth, 721, 722 B.C. The southern kingdom would hold on a little bit longer. And by the way, it's, there's a lot that I'm trying to keep from, but I'm trying to build on what we're, what we're talking about here. The, uh, in the northern kingdom, it's just important to note, though, that... Uh, that they did seek to replace God. They put golden calves, which tells us that even though they'd gone out of Egypt, and now if you look at it, we're looking at it considerably a great deal of time later. We're talking about now 500 years later, and they're still holding on to their cow. And uh, some people just can't let go of the cow, let me tell you. And, And as a result of that, they fall, they're taken captive, and they off they get sent off east to where we would know today as Iraq. Perhaps you're familiar with the fact that even some of the stuff that's happening with ISIS is happening just outside of the area of Nineveh, which was the capital of of Assyria of the day. Now, the southern, and God has this way, by the way, when things are about to, when the hammer's about to drop, that he sends in the big boys. It's like a lot of these prophets that you read in Scripture, there's a massive insurgence of them, an uprising, you know, a massive, in, uh, just a, uh, a deepening of the population of prophets and their, their activity during the time when you're about to fall. It'll happen in all of our lives, too. Those moments where you are on the verge of something really stupid, and God will bring friends that you haven't heard from in years. Like, if your mother was estranged, but she's a Christian, she might call you at that moment. It's like that kind of thing he brings in. You'll be all of a sudden there's a billboard that you've never seen before that is only there for the minute. 
And then you look again, it doesn't exist anymore. I mean, he'll do those kind of things because he really doesn't want you to fall. And he didn't want the, the north to fall, but to be honest, sometimes, to be honest, it's the only way that the, that behavior could be corrected. Like, understand, if God can move you with a feather, he will not use a sledgehammer. It's silly. He does not use excessive force. When the southern kingdom watches the north taken captive, they learn that during that time, their king, by the way, so this is the 720s BC, is actually Hezekiah. He's a pretty good guy. Or it seems to be the case. And while there were battles, while there were problems, we had to cry out to God. And, of course, if you know the story of Hezekiah, God actually says, go put your house in order, you're going to die. And he gets on his bed, turns to his wall, and he pouts like a little kid. Like, I've been good. I don't understand why God's doing this. And God's like, okay, well, I'll give you some more time. I'll show you. Now, for some, the people think, well, the guy's pouting is what got him more years to live. But let's be honest. If heaven is what awaits you, why in the heck would you want more years? Is that a reward? But it's more than that. You see, before that point, Hezekiah always had battles to fight. But the moment that that happens, he not only adds years, he removes the battles to fight, and he also gives him abject wealth. And now you start to see a different side of Hezekiah you ever saw from before. Now understand, for all of us, you may want to be out of the battles, you may want the abject wealth, but it tends to breed a part of us that we tend to think doesn't exist until those moments. It is amazing the monster we could become in great comfort. And it's during that time, by the way, he, gives, he, he has this son that we know as Manasseh, who was the most wicked king that had ever lived. His name literally means causes to forget. Because he was so bad, it could cause you to forget how good things were in Israel before, or in Judah before that time. And ultimately, the southern kingdom will be taken captive as well. Now, in that case, it'll be taken captive by Babylon. We know Babylon today as Iran. So Babylon, was taken, Babylon takes these guys captive in three exploits, by the way. The last of them, when Jerusalem is burned and destroyed and the people are taken captive, uh, that was in 586, 587 B.C. Now, please hear me on that. On those three exploits, the first time, the best men were taken. Those were the good-looking, smart, strapping boys, and they were made eunuchs. Now, I don't know about you, but, I mean, there's a part of me that would have thought, I wanted to be that until you find out what happened. So I'm like, well, I'm kind of glad I didn't make it, actually. Then the second exploit comes in with the, and by the way, with that group, by the way, is Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Perhaps you're familiar with those guys, the guys that we know as the Hebrew. By the way, that's the names they're giving, by the way. They have different Hebrew names. Those are the names given by the Babylonians. In the second exploit, they take 10,000 guys, and with that, they take them. The first group was taken to the palace. The second group was taken sort of out to the work farm, and Ezekiel is taken with them. With the third one, Jerusalem is destroyed, again, 586, 587 B.C., and with that, then, um, there is a, sort of a remnant that remains, including Jeremiah, that will ultimately end up in, in Egypt. Here's the important point. Everywhere there, that there were Israelis, God had a prophet with them. Even though they were taken captive, they didn't lose a voice. If you were put in the palace, you had a Daniel and these three boys. If you were out in the work field, you were there with Ezekiel. If you were left with the smoldering embers of Jerusalem, you were left with, Jer- with Jeremiah. There was always a voice, and God will always do that, by the way. Even in those moments when you do something really stupid and you get taken down, he still knows what he's doing. So, by the way, God had told us that every seventh year you had to let the land rest. And for 490 years, we didn't do it. We were so busy working and doing our stuff that we didn't have time for God. So if we do the math, one-seventh of 490, does anyone know what that is? It's 70 years. 
in those 70 years is what will happen. God says, well, here's the good news. Aren't you thankful God doesn't charge interest when you rip, try to rip them off? I mean, God's not like the government, right? You would say, well, you know, like a loan shark. God's like, hey, look at you said 70 for 70 years. You'd have thought after 400 years God had forgotten all about this, right? 490 years. Anyway, God says, all right, now you're done. We're going to give the land its rest. And for 70 years, the land sits quiet. It gets its rest. But he says, you, you won't be captive forever. I'm just basically helping you pay your bills. And you owe the land. Once those 70 years are done, he starts bringing them back. And interesting, remember how the South was taken captive in three exploits? They have three different opportunities to actually return as well. And when the decree goes and says you can go back and rebuild, of the two million plus people that were taken captive in the South, on the first return alone, 49,897 people returned. It's a very small number in comparison to the people who were taken captive. Do you know why? Because after 70 years, most of us just learned how to make Babylon our home. And for many of us, because our children would have been born in that time, Babylon's all we knew. It became the new Egypt. Does that make sense? Leaving it was very difficult. It's all we knew. So when the people come back at this point, after our three returns, the first group led by a guy named Zerubbabel, who goes to rebuild the temple. Because, by the way, and it's a great anatomy or biography of a return back to God. The first thing is you have to get back to that place where you meet the Lord. That's where it starts, is at the, at the place where it's just you and him. The second group that comes back, by the way, is a group led, led by a guy named Ezra. And he goes back to rebuild the people. He, gets, he goes back to rebuild fellowship. And that's important. Then comes Nehemiah, our third group, about 445 B.C., who goes back to rebuild the wall. And listen to that for a moment. Maybe you've walked away from the Lord, you've had time away from him, and you, things are, the embers are cold, things have been rotten, and you feel like you're in a far country. Well, welcome home. Can I say that first? Welcome home. There's a father who's always been waiting for you with his arms open, with a robe and a ring and a fatted calf. Welcome home. Now how do we do this? We get back to that place where it's just us and him. That's where it starts. That's the temple. Then we rebuild fellowship. Let's figure out how again just to, just to be among the, the saints. As broken and as messed up and as mucked up as you are, that's the good news. We're all a mess. Praise God. But then the third thing is there are walls that are going to be built. Now those walls are not to keep people out. Those walls are to let people know that they are out. Do you hear the difference? Because there's a world out there that just thinks if they're good enough people, God's going to just sort of wave a flag and that's good enough for them. And we're in a place of great safety in it because we've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. That fence, by the way, that wall is a loving wall to say. By the way, that wall comes with gates. It's important to note. A wall without that makes you basically an island. But a wall with a gate is an invitation through the gospel for them to join you. But why would they want to join you if they don't think they're not of you? Well, consider that. Well, now here's the problem. Now that we've rebuilt the city, who's going to be high priest? Remember that we didn't have a king. Once we go back to that, we don't have a king. So the most important person is going to be the guy that does all those big sacrifices and all that. But which guy do you pick? I mean, the, the issue is, is we've got, okay, we know it has to be from not only the tribe of Levi, but it also has to be from the family of Kohath. Remember that? We can see that even in the book of Numbers. So we can kind of chase a lineage down. But when you get down to it, you have a whole bunch of guys that are the, still of that descendancy. And you kind of look and you go, well, now, which one of these guys do we pick? Does that make sense? What makes one guy better than another? Well, what they did is they looked and they said, well, who was the high priest in David's day? The high priest in David's day was a guy whose name was Righteous. 
a Zephyr name. Ratchet, which we know as Zadok. So they said, well, the last high priest that we thought was really the deal, Mr. Ratchet, does he have any kids? And they took those guys and they made them the high priesthood. Does that make sense? Those Zadok people, would we call Zadokites, or we would know them as Zadokians, or we would say Sadducees. That's where the term comes from. That means of the descendancy of Zadok. So here's the problem. Do you know why we picked them? Okay, let's do this. Let's say this was a Greek thing. Give me a really common Greek name for a moment, surname. Giorgio. I mean, everyone's like, Giorgio, George, something, like, George starts a whole lot of things. And, and the first name is Chris. That's like a billion people in, in Greece. Okay, well, imagine, if you will, we said, all right, here's the deal. We're going to give the entire Greek Orthodox Church to the Giorgio people, if you can imagine. You know what the problem with that is? No qualification was based upon your character or your love for God. You just happen to have the right surname. Could you imagine Imagine if it's like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to give the entire Anglican church to the Smiths. And it doesn't even matter if it was the Smiths. You could even just pick any other name you wanted to that was just a British name. Jenkins. The bottom line is, in the end of it all, what you have is a bunch of people who basically woke up one day and won Monopoly. They got Boardwalk and Park Place. And they were handed to them. They had the biggest piece of property that ever existed in regards to the rebuilding once it'll happen, and that will be the temple. And they have the whole thing. They get the best property. They're not supposed to own any of it, but they basically have oversight to the whole thing. They were like, they woke up and it's like ka-ching. They've got all the money they could possibly want to spend and more with no qualification within their interest of God. Does that make sense so far? So you know what happens to a group of guys like that? Well, what happens? Well, what happened to Hezekiah when he got comfortable? You really get to see the ugly side of them. They became very strong. You know what they became? They became the Illuminati of the day. You know, that's kind of the idea. They were the rich guys that controlled stuff. Now, I'm not saying anything like the Illuminati is real or, or not or whatever. That's, leave that for some book that you want to read somewhere. I, the bottom line in the other is I know who runs the world. By the way, the world is under the sway of the wicked one, but it still belongs to my God. Because all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And I guarantee you, nothing's going to happen and God's going to like wake up one day and go, what in the world? How did that happen? First of all, he never sleeps. He never slumbers. My God knows everything. So don't tell me about how Satan snuck by God to get to you. For goodness sakes, who's your God? Now, back to the point. <clears throat> Forgive me for the lengthy thing, if you will, but I'm trying to give background to why this is a big deal. These Sadducees then, they were very, very rich landowners. So if you were to say, what's the emblem of Judaism? Well, obviously the temple. Wouldn't that make sense? That's why, by the way, when they're trying to pit Jesus against the Sadducees, they say he blasphemes the temple. Because that is the biggest challenge or affront to the Sadducees. But they did not believe in the resurrection. They also, by the way, didn't believe in anything else they couldn't see. Which, by the way, means that they didn't believe in angels or demons or an afterlife. They didn't believe in any of that stuff. Which, by the way, is such a strange thing to have a religion where basically the entire thing is basically worldly karma. Think about it. Yeah, and by the way, I don't know if you know this, but there's a very big portion of Orthodox Judaism that's like that today. 
The idea of it is you do good stuff, good stuff will happen to you in this life, and that's all you get, and then you're buried and you cease to exist. Now, the whole thing is totally lunatic, but there is a real common thing about it. Let's face it. You walk up to a stranger and you kick them, it's less likely they will treat you well than if you actually were kind to them. So don't call that karma. That's called common sense. You know, I don't know. I did something bad to someone, and they did something bad to me. My karma. Your karma? Isn't there a part of you that just realizes if you slap a dog, it bites you? Karma. Anyways, you get the idea. Well, here's the problem. Is in Acts 23.8, again, these Sadducees, who are a very strong part of the political, religious political system of, of Judaism, well, they were, some of them appear to be getting saved. The problem is when they get saved, in other words, they respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for your sins. He rose again. He's come to offer you brand new life. You need to accept. Remember, what happened is somewhere down the line they heard the gospel, which was Jesus died for your sins according to Scripture. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according to Scripture. And then he was seen by lots of people. And now you need to accept him. And they're like, okay, yeah, I want to be forgiven. I want my sins gone. I want to be washed clean. I want to be atoned for. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to have any problem like that. I wouldn't want to stand before God blameless. And then you go, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And then somewhere down the line, you start going, yeah, but I kind of still think this way. How do I bring the old me over into this new walk with me? And every group does it. And here's the thing. Because understand, we all kind of have a sense of right or wrong. Even before we were saved, we have some weird sense of right or wrong. Now, some of us know it's already wonky, but most of us still have some sense we just assume. Like, you know, most of us, we kind of think raping, that's just a bad idea. It's just wrong. You know, killing, you know, one man rampant, just, you know, killing a stranger. You can argue over in regards to justice, but in regards to other, this is wrong. I mean, there's certain things. I mean, to be honest, stealing from someone's wrong because we don't want someone to steal from us. I mean, we get the idea, and the bottom line is because there's a part of us that doesn't want it happening to us. But in the end of it all, we start going before God and he starts showing us that there's a brand new standard. And there are some things we would have thought were okay before that aren't okay anymore. And there are things we thought were actually fairly bad that God actually may free us up to now. And part of that now is, is that you get the idea, there's a group of people like this, that they're wealthy, they're influential, and everybody kind of wants to be like them, wouldn't you? And so you follow what they say, and you're listening, you know, you're checking their tweets, and you're kind of hashtagging everything that involves them, or whatever it is, and in the end of it all, you're like, well, that's what they think, and that's where they eat, and i got to go to Nando's in Camden, because that's where they eat, or whatever it is. And by the time you're done, you're basically kind of, you've got their haircut, and you kind of did this thing, and you're trying to learn this thing like them, or whatever it is. And, you're like, and you, you, don't, you don't even know who you are anymore. You're just kind of, you're a weird thing. And now please understand this group has made it into the church. And they're trying to make this thing Christian. And there are some things, beloved, that just don't work within that confines. And this is clearly one of them. The Pharisees, by the way, once this thing happens, what happens then the Jewish movement becomes a very secular movement when the Pharisees start taking control. Does that make sense? I'm sorry, when the Sadducees start taking control. So there's a counter movement and it's sort of the back to the Bible or back to the Torah movement. And those people want to be separate. And one of the words for separate is the word parasha or parash. And parash being separate, they become the parashim or the Pharisees. That's where we get that term from. So they were kind of what they simply meant in the essence was we're the separatists. We will not want to be included with that group of people that don't believe in things they can't see. So the essence is that there were actually a good idea in the beginning, but the pendulum never stops in the middle. 
Does that make sense? I mean, these people were way over here, so they decided they're going to swing way over here. And that's the history of the church, beloved. No matter what it is, the moment's a counter movement, it never stops in the middle. So, you know, let me give you one that kind of happened that's been happening recently. The holiness of God and his approachableness. Think about this for a second. In regards to the holiness of God, God dwells in inapproachable light. He's totally different than any other person. He's absolutely pure, absolutely perfect. And that should be very intimidating. So there's a part of him that is so different from us that it should freak us out even to think about it. But understand what the beautiful thing about God is, is how he's full of these paradoxes that only God could put together, no one else could, make, could put together. But then he's totally approachable. I mean, he was approachable to the whore. He was approachable to the drug addict. He was approachable to the tax collector and to the leper. There was no person, no struggle, no weakness, no pain that, that somebody couldn't go to God with. So how do you put those two things together? You know what happens when you have two things that where the math doesn't work? That's where faith steps in. So what happens is you have a church, what you, in one case it's like, well, we need to, to make God approachable. So you know how we make God approachable? We like make him, like we get t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy, you know. And it's like, you know, we're going to do it like everything's going to be like singing songs where it's like, Jesus, you're cool, you're my buddy, and I just want to go and watch football with you. Oi, oi, oi. And it's like, that's our praise song now? You know, and we have the little bobblehead Jesus on our dashboard or whatever. And it's like, you know, and it's like these little plastic Jesuses we're handing out to people. And it's like it gets to this point where it's, well, yeah, okay, yeah, he's approachable, but he's not holy anymore. Does that make sense? And that becomes the problem of that is that then you've got people when you swing that far off. It's like now you have to learn how to forgive Jesus. How do you have to forgive him for what? Because he's like one of my buddies. And if he does something I don't like, hey, your buddies may do that, but your buddies aren't perfect. And you aren't either. So you're actually a good crowd together. But the moment you actually realize that Jesus, but then what happens is, go, okay, well, now he's way too approachable. Because of that, where he's losing his holiness. So we need to make him holy. But it doesn't stop in the middle. So now we go way over here. And what over here is, is we need to light candles and get esoteric. And we need to light incense. And we need to make sure we're in stained glass rooms. And we need to put in music that no one's going to understand. That's even worse than jazz. And some, for those of you who don't like that kind of complex stuff. You know? And it's like, and we're going like, to sing in Latin. Though none of us know even what the heck it means. And we're going to, and in the end of it all, we're going to be like, whoa. Did you feel that? I think I felt like holy. Like I think I felt like sacrosanct. And we put up a wall. And you can't, you, you, you know, God's so holy now, you have to like talk to his mom or some guy that died from Italy like 500 years ago that like doesn't know who you are and why would he care anyways, you know. But you can go and kiss his toe somewhere or the bone of it, you know, in a, in a, sh- in a shrine. And then he'd like some, or, and then you like pictures of Jesus, like for instance, in, in, where in scripture you ever see Jesus saying, all right, you guys, right before we eat this last supper, everyone come over to this side for a portrait. I mean, we just don't see it, right? And then, and then you have to kiss pictures of people that don't know who you are either. And then you, someone, so someone could go behind a wall somewhere and do something. You don't even know what he does. Hey, but it's holy because it's like far away and far out. Do you see what happened? And you know what's going to happen next? It's going to swing back over to the other side again, and Jesus is going to be like in a pair of sneakers, and you know he's going to be like with you know wearing Burberry or something. It's like the shav, and it's like what in the world just happened? Here's the cool thing: if you sit in Scripture. I don't have to run back and forth. And that's what Ephesians says. We're not tossed back and forth by winds of doctrine, by the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting of men. Craftiness. It's like that stuff. You know, guys are always going to come up with their goofy stuff. 
You sit in the middle and you're like, he's absolutely holy and he's absolutely approachable. And people go, how do you put the two together? And I'm like, faith, that's how I put the two together. And there's the problem with these guys is, by the way, every one of us, we're going to read scripture and we're going to get to a point where something we thought was cool and right isn't going to jive with scripture. And we're going to have to change one or the other. Which do you change? Every cult that's called a Christian cult, which is an oxymoron in my opinion, but every Christian cult that's out there, that's what happened. Is they got to a scripture that they didn't like that actually said that what you're doing is wrong. And they said, well, then we're just going to have to throw that out and move into write our own thing. Or even funkier yet, the guy that we got to talk to yesterday morning there's a guy that walked around with a picture of Mary, and he's like, well, I know it's hidden in Scripture. And I'm like, bro, you would not have got it by reading Scripture. He's like, he goes, I know. That's why I had to be led there by someone else. And I'm like, do you hear yourself talk? Is the person who led you God? Because otherwise, this person's doing something God wouldn't do for you? You should think that through. Now, that's a very lengthy route into where we're at in our text. But please hear me in this. The fundament is quite simple. God demands that the resurrection be a fundamental, foundational aspect of our lives. And there are three basic areas here we're going to see in our scripture. It's actually quite simple, and it's right in front of us. Now, he says, have you ever thought this through? Bringing this doctrine, this goofy thing, into the church, trying to say that somehow it still can work. He goes, look at verse 13, and that's where this starts with. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't risen. He's going to say that twice, by the way, you'll see here. And here's how he goes with the first part. And the three points will be the necessity of the resurrection in these three areas. If Christ is not risen, verse 14, then our preaching is empty. The word for empty, by the way, is the word kenos, and it means empty. And the idea is quite simple. It's this disappointing connotation of reaching into your cookie jar and finding nothing there. Or perhaps for some of us, it's opening up the fridge and you thought you had that last yogurt. You thought you had that sandwich and you tucked it away and then one of your children, I'm not bitter, it's just a hypothetical situation, and it's gone. And you're like, this is not supposed to be empty. I know what was supposed to be in there. It's not there. I'm just giving you the passion to help with the point. Jude speaks about the false teachers this way in regards to them as trees that are uprooted twice dead, about dark rain clouds that produce no rain, wandering stars, you can't even get guidance from them. It's like everything that they promise. Imagine it's like, oh yeah, just follow that star when we're going east. Oh wait a minute, or we're going west, or we're going that. And then you realize that, you know, that it was like a plane. You ever done that? So that's circling you like a scavenger. Anyway, and, and so understand here. Here's the first thing. Here's look at if, if really this is the case. If you really want to say that, that that all we have is this life, and that's going to be the key point of this, is that all you got is this life, and nothing else. And Jesus then isn't really resurrected. He's not risen. Well, then our preaching, well, we really what we say is is nothing. Our speech is an empty jar that people reach in and find nothing of substance in. And it says not only that, but your faith is, and it's the same word. Kenos. What you trust in is an empty jar. You trust in an empty, you're, what you're trusting in is emptiness. And we are found false witnesses of God because we've said that God was raised, that raised them from the Christ, and if he isn't raised, well, then we're lying. 
Here's the first thing. In the simplest sense, you ready? The first thing is the necessity of the resurrection in my speech. It is necessary for me to preach, to speak of the resurrection. It is necessary. Now hear me on this. Because if we preach without it, we can say slogans that most of us are familiar with, that even are true, they're just not the whole story. Like, Jesus loves you. I just preached the gospel. No, you didn't. Jesus died for you. Ooh. But a dead Savior doesn't necessarily mean a living Lord. If Jesus actually didn't resurrect, then he's no one to be trifled with. Because let's face it, he's not, a, he's not alive to deal with. If Jesus died and he didn't resurrect, then he was a nice guy that was delusional that died but said he was going to resurrect and didn't. He lied. But the bottom line is, is what in the world am I talking about? What am I preaching to you? But we can do that. Hey, I just want to tell you how Jesus died on the cross. Here's the crazy thing. If that's all I'm preaching, people are going to find that totally empty because the bottom line is it's the resurrection that shows us why God replaces our filthy, rotten life right now with something good. What the, what the death part tells us is that there are things that have to leave, and that's why people don't want to give their life to Christ. Because the best thing they know is sleeping with their girlfriend. The best thing they know is doing is getting drunk. The best thing they know is getting a little tipsy, doing this little thing, and getting a little questionable, and being totally sexually free, making up their own rules and their own things. And what you're basically saying by the, by the death part or the cross part is stop doing that. And they would say, they would have a right to say, why? You say, because it's bad. And, they, and to be honest, many people would say, I don't care. It's the most fun I can have. And to be honest, I was raised in a school that taught me that I have no real purpose for my life anyways. I just kind of evolved from tissue. And so, I, you know, and so why should I care about my life? And why should I care anyways if I'm just going to go to the grave anyways? I might as well have as much fun as I can until then. If that's all I've got going for me. So you can understand me just saying, hey, you know, Jesus loves you. Hey, the problem with that is, is that love has been so manipulated. Let's be honest. We could do a favor sometimes more so to tell people that Jesus likes them. But in this, please hear me. The resurrection was fundamental in the preaching in the book of Acts. Acts 1.22, from the beginning of the baptism of John to the day he was taken up, one must become, this is finding a replacement for Judas, one must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Acts 4.2, the people that, the religious leaders, which by the way were led by the high priest who happened to be a Sadducee, they were greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Acts 4.33, and with great power after they get beat up and then sent out and they pray, God give us power to continue to testify. They say, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Acts 17, 18, when Paul stood before the leaders in Athens, there's our Greeks for us, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they say, what does this babbler want to say? He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Understand, it was paramount from the beginning of it. Acts 24, 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, this is Paul giving his testimony, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just 
and of the unjust. And if you want to know more about that, that's Acts, I'm sorry, Revelation 20, verses 5 and 6, where everyone's going to stand before God, and you're going to be in one of two groups. One of those groups you're going to want to be in. The other you're not. And my question is, is there a resurrection in your speech? Do we talk about the new life? What it means to be made new in Christ. Some people are going to ask you for the hope, for an answer for the hope that you have in Christ. What in the world makes you so different? Or, I knew you before, how did you get this different? What changed you? Jesus, let me elaborate slightly. He died for my sins according to Scripture. He was buried. And with that, the old me was buried. But then, just as Scripture promised, three days later, he was raised from the dead. And he's given me new life. What you see now is the new creation he's made me. And that's what he wants to do with you. Many of us see ourselves as the smoking gun, if we're honest. And the problem is, how do we run from the, the enemy of ourselves? We'd love to see that guy die, but we don't want to die. That's the beauty of not just the cross, but the power of the resurrection. The second thing then, notice it says then, yes, verse 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. There's our point again. And he says, and if Christ isn't risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. The second thing is the necessity of the resurrection in my view of life. Here's the problem. Now he doesn't say, use the same word. Remember that word for empty when it said your faith was empty before? Now the word is futile. And the word futile now is the word matayos. And the word matayos means pointless, profitless, purposeless. You know those kind of things? I'll be honest. That's kind of how I look at Xbox a lot of times when you spend 65 hours trying to get the high score. In the end of it all, what you got out of it was bloodshot eyes. You haven't slept in three days. And you've got carpal tunnels from pressing these little buttons the whole time. It really had no great point. Maybe you feel good about yourself for getting the 164 million or whatever. But in the end of it all, it does nothing for the rest of your life other than maybe give you a bad back. And I'm not trying to diss you for playing a bit of Xbox. I would say if you're going to do it, grab a couple guys. You go and do it and then pray and read the Bible afterwards. Do something where you use it as an analogy somehow. And if not, find something else to do. He says, you know what? Your faith now, if Jesus really hasn't raised from the dead and you really want to try to drag this in and it's really about this life now, there's no point to this. We're sitting around trying to learn how to curb ourselves from our, our natural animalistic appetites of doing the horrible things everybody else thinks is okay to do so that we can, what, die later in life? The problem is England's the worst for that because there's always some gal in England that lives to like 190 and she lived on like, you know, cocktail pickles and, you know, and like olives or something, you know, it's like a shot of whiskey every morning and you're like, wow, you really blow the bell curve. So it is, you know, you can't go, oh, well, there's that guy in India and he lives on like yogurt and he kneels on rocks or something. But it's like, it isn't, God doesn't guarantee you a longer earthly life. He doesn't even guarantee you a more comfortable one. He never, by the way, God never told you he was going to give you a more comfortable life. He just promised to be your comfort in this life. And that's the beauty of it. You start demanding comfort from God, you better start asking him to be it. 
Because otherwise, you'll be asking for yourself to be set up to become the next Hezekiah. Do you want that? So look at it. He says that, notice, if your faith is worthless, it's profitless, it's purposeless, well then guess what? Welcome back to the old life, the one where you're still in your sins. Here's the problem. Romans 6.4 says, we were buried with him through, through baptism into death. That just, remember the idea of it is, you were immersed just like Christ into his death. Now, let me remind you, the word baptism isn't an event, it's a state. So we started trying to make it something that the church has made it because the word wasn't even a Christian word when it started. The idea of it was it's immersion. So we start saying, well, this has to be an event. Now listen, you were immersed into Christ's death. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also should walk in the newness of life. Verse Chapter 6, Romans, verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. Chapter 8, verse 11 of the same book. But if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The whole point is simple. And that is that Christ is raised from the dead and you've been immersed into his death You are now immersed into his life. And that's the good news. But if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then what happened? You buried the old guy and what? Now all you have is more dirt on you. But if Jesus rose from the dead, there's a whole new life to live now where death no longer has dominion, where sin no longer has dominion. The bondage has been broken. And by the way, Since it is a fact, and that's where we go next week, since it is a fact, sin's death grip on you was broken at death, Christ's death. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that those who are in Christ are a new creation. That's why in Galatians 6, when, by the way, when the Pharisees started getting saved, remember that's the whole group that brings in the law of Moses and traditions, because that's what happens when the pendulum swings the other way. Well, then they were the ones that said you had to be circumcised to be saved. You have to become Jewish to be saved. That's what happens when they try to drag their thing. Imagine being in a church where everyone's dragging their old culture in and saying, oh, well, actually, you have to be Greek to be saved. The problem is, if you know any Greeks, they'll tell you, you'll never be a Greek unless you were born one. No matter how much I, you know, watch the movie, no matter how much I speak the language or whatever, in the end of it all, I always be xenos to some degree. And you bring in everything. Imagine how kooky that would be in our church because we have, you know, we have 40, 50 different cultures and countries represented here. Imagine if it's like, well, which one of you do I have to be next? And so when Paul speaks to the group that had been affected by these Pharisees who had come in and said, now you have to do all these laws too. Paul said, that stuff doesn't matter. And I do love this. It's two very simple statements in the book of Galatians. One in chapter 5, one in chapter 6. Please hear it. One is who you are, the other is what you do. He says circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. Which, by the way, if you'll pardon me for saying in those days, was kind of the, uh, our version of baptism. Does you know what really matters? A new creation and faith working itself in love. That's who you are and what you do. That's all that matters. If you are the new creation Christ has made you, and you're exercising your faith by actually being selfless and serving others for their benefit, stop worrying about the rest. If God tells you to do something, obey him. 
But that's why it's necessary, essential to have the resurrection in your view of life. And by the way, imagine if that's what we did with everything. So you're like looking at two options. What do you want to do is say, can, which of these, can both of these be reconciled to my resurrected life? You have ambitions. Do I want to do this with my life? Do I want to do this with my life? And I say, can I reconcile both of these to my resurrected life? You're looking at two options. Two different people are kind of digging you, and you're like, yeah, they're kind of both nice. And, and, you know, and you're like, well, can I reconcile either of these to my resurrected life? Can I still do that habit? Can I still watch that thing? Can I still play this thing? Some stuff you'll be like, yeah. But I'll have a different purpose in it. Other things I'll be like, you know what, no. I mean, I know, I know some people, to be honest, I don't think they should play Uno ever. Man, I watch them and I'm like, oh man, that, that is not a resurrected game of Uno. That's, a, that's, that's flesh, man. That is the old man dragged over into this Uno game. I mean, there are others that could play it and it's like, praise the Lord. And that's why you can't set those kind of boundaries on everyone. You can't say Uno's evil. Say, We're, you're the problem, not the Uno. So please hear me in this. You were born a slave to sin. We were all, John 8, 34 tells us, whoever sins is a slave to it. The problem is you were born into sin. I was born into sin. We were born slaves. We were born in our own Egypt. But Jesus died for us to get us out of Egypt. But to understand, not so we could wander around in the wilderness, but that he could bring us to a place of fruitfulness and abundance. And that's the new life. That's the resurrection life. And then there's one last point here. But the first, again, is the necessity of the resurrection and what I say. The second is the resurrection of the, re- the necessity of the resurrection in my view of life. And then the last of them, look at what it says here then in verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men most pitiable. The necessity, the third is the necessity of the resurrection in my view of death. And by the way, this really should infect us to every degree. No wonder why it says, even in our initiation into accepting him, it says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you are willing to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God did what? Raise them from the dead. You'll be saved. See, understand Jesus' dying proves that he's my savior, but Jesus' resurrection gives him the right to be my Lord. And that's why people don't have a problem with Jesus dying, because who doesn't want a Savior if you're humble enough to get it? The Lordship's the hard part, because then you have to surrender yourself to his rules, to his leadership, to his provisions. And that's a different story, isn't it? And there are going to be a whole lot of people that are like, hey, you know, I don't have a problem calling you Lord as long as you don't have to really be the Lord. In Romans, I'm sorry, in Hebrews, it tells us, chapter 2, that he came and he was manifest that he might free those. Because as the children partook in flesh and blood, he himself also did the same. That he might, through his death, free those who their entire life were slaves or in bondage by their fear of death. See, understand, he's already gone before us. And what he shows us is that that's a threshold, not just a closed door. Now, that's, and there's a part that intrigues us about that. That's why we watch movies about crazy things and just like any person that could say that they've died and come back and how they saw purple unicorns and, and they, you know, they ate Lucky Charms on the other side and everything was good and they saw their mother again. You know, I don't want to argue over that stuff. It's kind of silly. 
The point is this. There is one person who knows death and life better than anyone. It's the one who, by the way, invented life and knows how to take life out of anything and raise the dead in front of us with people like Lazarus, who, by the way, would have stunketh after four days. And he still raised them anyways. And here's the point. That some of us, more than likely, in this room, will probably meet a surprise um, appointment with the Lord. We all have an appointment with the Lord because it tells us it is appointed unto man to, listen, hear me, to die and then to judgment and to die once. You don't get a second shot. This is it. This is, this is the one chance you get. God makes it very clear there's no such thing as reincarnation. What God definitely tells us is that there is a thing called a resurrection, and that's the thing you want to be careful about. No. We, are all, we all have an appointment to stand before God. No, I guarantee you, none of us in this room know when it is. Now, you might be praying for certain people that it's a little closer than they might. Perfectly not. You may be praying that yours is a little longer than it might be. Some of us, by the way, probably will see it coming a little bit. Some of us will be quite surprised. It'll be like sort of we blink and the next thing you know, we're going to stand before him. But we all are going to stand before him. The question is, do you fear it? If we know that that is what is awaiting us on the other side of the door. And I, I've often said, since I've given my life to Christ, I'm like, I have no apprehension about death. The dying process is a little ap- I'm apprehensive about because I've lived through a lot of pain and I would have to hurt more than anything that I've ever experienced because I've lived through it. So, you know, but then you know, you're one of those kind of people that are like, oh, Lord, just take me in my sleep or something, you know, or whatever. I'm just, I would rather... You know, I've often prayed, Lord, I'd, I'd love to just die at the pulpit just to, to kind of finish it, but I don't want to be, like, teaching on God smiting the sinner or something, you know. And then, like, I just die in front of everybody, and they're like, oh, I guess we should get the point from that, yeah. Talk about hidden sin or something. Yeah, no, it's okay. Yeah, well, here's, the, here's the good news. Is, you know what part I get rid of when I, when I, when I go and, and meet my appointment? I get rid of all the part that struggles, that's falling apart, that itches, and that is losing hair, and is gaining weight, and all this stuff. All that stuff kind of, and I don't know what the glorified body looks like. I could look like a Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. I'm not going to care. It's going to be absent of sin. That's the issue. And the cool thing is, whatever it is, maybe we'll all look like it. It doesn't matter. Wouldn't it be funny if we actually all did look like little naked babies playing harps? We'd be like, oh my goodness, they were right. I mean, I doubt it. I don't know where we get that in. There's no place in scripture, but the, the you know. It would, just, it would just be, you know, if it is, you can remember this and be like, oh, my goodness. He was, wow, yeah. Those Renaissance guys, they had something. In the end of it all, we're just not going to care because it's going to be about Jesus then. But see, here's the thing. And let me, and we're wrapping this around the close now. Now, Paul, we, we're familiar with one of his most sort of sloganized, iconic statements from Philippians when he says, for me to live is, to Christ, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Boy, isn't that a beautiful slogan we can put on, you know, on the side of our car? We can wear as a shirt, and you know, we can kind of text each other with a smiley face and a little something we can cut and paste and throw onto it, whatever. But what if we really lived that? Please hear me. I really, genuinely, I'm, I'm com- totally convinced there's no possible way we could say the latter unless we were absolutely convinced of the first. 
How can I possibly say to die is gain if I can't say to live is Christ? And if I can say to live is Christ, then basically the mirror that I'm looking in dimly right now, I will see face to face then. In other words, it's like I love the appetizer so much, I can't wait for the main meal. You know, hey, my daughter's gone now. You're aware of it, many of you. We've said goodbye to our 16-year-old for six weeks. She's in Hungary right now. And it's like I, I couldn't have put her in a better place than I'm aware of. She's there in a thing called a vision for life. She's studying scripture. She's learning how to evangelize. She's doing a flash mob so she can go preach Jesus. I mean, it's like all this way cool stuff. And she's going to places like, you know, like vacation spots like Serbia, you know, or, you know, okay, sure. And where they're going to go and share Jesus with people. And, and I just absolutely love it. But I'll be honest, I miss holding her. I knew I would. I re- I'll be honest. I, I didn't think I'd be the one to hit the hardest. I thought Suzanne would be a mess. You know? I thought Ruthie would be like, oh, man, do I get a room? You know? but, but I thought, oh, man, I thought I'll be, I'll be the one to be like, it's okay, sweetheart. And I, like, I was the mess. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to go for a walk. You know? and, and it's like, and because, it's, you know, of course, the moment she's like walking up, she's going up the escalator or whatever on the way, it's like the piano music starts playing in my head. I'm like, are you kidding me already? And like little slides when she was like four and daddy this and that. And I'm like, oh, stop. Am I doing this? Are you doing this? You know, and I'm like, it's fine. Ugh, allergies. And but I mean, we get these videos, you know, and I, we've Skype with her a couple of days or yesterday. We got to Skype with her. No, was it? Yeah, it was yesterday. We got to Skype with her. And there was a part of me that's like, I look at her, and it's like, I, I love the little bit of fellowship I get with her right now, and talking with her, and laughing, and hearing about how she's made a thousand friends, and they all coincidentally have boys' names, or whatever it is. And, you know, and I'm, I'm like, listening to all this, but, there's, but I still don't get to hold her. You know? I still don't get to walk on the street holding her hand or arm in arm like I do with her when she was here just a, block, you know, a week and a half ago. And, and there's a part of me that aches for that. But I do know this. As a dad, this is a great thing. The hard part, to be honest, the part that really hit me the most is I realized this is rehearsal for the big deal that will happen in a year and a half when she actually does you know, move out as an adult. That was the part that I'm like, oh, gosh, this is rehearsal. But this part of going and going, okay, we have fellowship, and we're talking, and we're enjoying each other for the moment. I know it's only for a period of time because you need to go, and who knows how long I can do this. And... Uh, but 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 I, I hunger for more because I love this girl and I enjoy her and I I love holding her and I love feeling her head on my shoulder and and the way she fits under my arm and you know those kind of things and those moments it's like it's, I've never watched more movies in my life because it's the only time I can ever just get her to sit down next to me for a couple hours and just lean into me and she leans in hard man I tell you and the Lord uses that. As I, as I, I know that that's his heart as I'm praying with him and as I'm worshiping him. And he's like, you know, I can't wait for the day when I just hold you. And nothing else is going to matter. And it's like this moment I'm with the Father and we're, we're in his word. And we're praying and we're singing and we're saying speaks my heart and we're crazy enough to listen and assume he's going to say something. Because we believe, because we we have faith in what he says. And we're there, and we're like, God, I, I, I feel like I'm Skyping you. But I want to just sit in your lap. And God's like, when you do, you'll never have to get off again. You'll never feel like you're off again. 
Like right now, technically I'm in his love. Technically I am in Christ. That's beautiful. But man, there's going to be a moment. Nothing else is going to be there but me and him. Nothing else is going to matter. And, and understand, when I see that, I get why it's so necessary to see the resurrection in my view of death. Because if I don't, this is a rough road. If what we get out of this is just that someday we get a nice plot next to someone else, maybe we left a little legacy somehow. Our kids said we were good. We were good parents. Or there was a church that said, you know, he was a good pastor and you cried for a day over it. And you should be jealous. If I go before you, you should be jealous. And you know what? My heart is that I will live the kind of life that you'll be able to say, he finally got what he wanted. He finally got what his heart craved with everything. She goes, are you nuts? This is Paul speaking. Are you nuts? Thinking that there's no resurrection, that you're just doing this all for now? Do you really think Christianity is a good bet for now? If Christians did this for now alone, we are pitiful people. Which, by the way, just means you should pity us. But eternity is for real. The resurrection is for real. And because the resurrection is for real, I want to tell you, my, I want my, because from the abundance of my heart, my mouth speaks, I want my heart to be so infected with the newness of my resurrection, of my resurrection in Christ, that it comes out of my mouth every time you bump into me. I want the resurrection to be so in my eyes that when I view my life, I want to reconcile everything to it. Now that I am this new person, how do I treat you? How do I view the needy person? How do I view a person who needs a coat, needs a, needs a meal, needs a bath? Is it enough to give him a bath or a coat or a meal? Now that I've seen eternity, why in the world would I think that's enough? Now that it's the case, I look and I say, how do I reconcile my marriage to eternity? Now, I won't be married to this woman forever, and that's sad. So this is the, this, in this life that I have right now, this is the only time I get to pastor you. It's the only time I get to teach the word like this. It's the only time I get to evangelize. I won't be evangelizing in heaven. But I'll be like, I already heard that. That's why I'm here. The good news is the success rate would be, you know, 100%. Do you agree with me? Yeah, awesome. Let's go to the next guy. Let's go to the next little flying naked baby. Uh, <clears throat> Hey, you with the harp. Um, I mean, imagine if we looked at our life and said, how does that reconcile to my resurrection? How does that reconcile to my resurrection? I wouldn't want to cheat something. I wouldn't want to treat somebody poorly. And when somebody flies off the handle and acts like a lunatic because they don't know the Lord, me flying by in the same manner doesn't really look good in the sight of eternity. I can't reconcile it to my, re- to my resurrection. But then when I look, and it's like, if I'm the one that's going to be on the deathbed, I want to die well. Does that make sense? 
I don't want to just live well. I want to die well. That's where it's like, however it is. There's almost, some, there's almost a mercy in, in dying quick or in your sleep. It's the one where you kind of have to live out those last days where you, you inch your way to the threshold. That the nurses see the difference when they have to tend to you. So however, however you get there, whether you take the quick route, you know, whether you take the express lane or not, we're going to wind up there together. Now, as we go to prayer, this is what no other religion can offer. You're aware of that, right? No other religion offers a resurrection. And if, we don't, if we're not quick with the resurrection in everything we say and do, no wonder why they think we're just another religion. None of these other guys resurrect, and they don't offer you a resurrection. They tell you, be nice, and let's hope for the best. Praise God I'm not the guy I used to be. So when someone says I was born that way, so well, wait till you see what you could be reborn. Because, man, we're all someone new. We're growing to look like Jesus. So look at If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, praise God. That means that he not only put the person you were to death, but he gave you a brand new person resurrected. If you've not, I'm going to give you that chance. But if you have, I think it's time for us to ask God to reconcile those things to our life, don't you think? I mean, it's one thing for us to kind of, you know, idealistically agree with these things, but it's an entirely different thing to say, all right, practically, how do I live that out now? How do I say, yes, Lord, let me live resurrected? And then we're going to sing a song, and then we'll call it for the night. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful text. We're, it's funny because what we kind of went over was Paul being flabbergasted by a group of people that are dragging an old idealism into, a, into you that it can't possibly reconcile like so many other things that seem so right in some way and we felt we're so airtight in our tiny little minds in our proud minds that we thought just couldn't possibly be broken through and now here we are looking at this and saying there's no possible way this could reconcile with the gospel. And it may not even be this issue. It may be some other issue in some of us here, Lord, where it really is a, uh, a, something that we're, just, we're fighting because we feel it's right, we think it could be right, but then we realize your scripture says the opposite of it, and we want to fight your scripture. It will just show us right now that if we want to fight your scripture, we're going to always be wrong. And I pray, Lord... First, if there be anyone here who has not accepted your gift, Jesus, your death on the cross, but also to be their Savior, but also your resurrection to be their Lord, show them their need right now. And if that's you, I'm just going to pray a prayer. I ask at the end, you say amen. And what you're saying is, okay, I agree. Let that be my prayer. Let those words be mine. And here it is. God, I'm a sinner, just like everyone else, born into sin, a slave of it. But I believe you died on the cross for me, according to Scripture, for my sins so that they could be paid for, so all my guilt could be punished. You were buried, and on the third day, just as Scripture promised, you rose again. And because you rose again, you offer me new life now, so I could be a new creation with you as my Lord, not just as my died Savior, but as my resurrected Lord. And so I say yes to you. I say yes to you that I could be now a new witness of this resurrection, this resurrected life, the power of your resurrection in my life now to be someone different. And even right now, as I say yes, I know you're reinventing me right now. So I receive you openly. 
and say happy in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say amen. And Lord, right now as well for us, as we call on your name and we claim you as our Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, right now that if there be anything right now in our speech that doesn't reconcile to a resurrection, to our resurrection, that is so caked full of temporariness instead of the eternity that you've put us in, change our speech. But to do that, you have to change our hearts. Change our hearts then, Lord. And Lord, also, if there be anything, Lord, in our outlook of our life, our priorities, our value system, our, our outlook, our dreams, our hopes, whatever it is, if there be anything at all, but tonight we recognize there are areas of our life that don't reconcile with our resurrection, well, then change it right now. Transform us and our viewpoints so that we can live this life resurrected. And Lord, as well, I just pray right now that you would uh, just change our view of death, Lord. And then not like we want to die. It isn't like we, we, you know, we're asking Kevorkian or someone to assist us in this. But rather, Lord, we know we have an appointment and you're the one who's making that appointment. And so, Lord, we don't want to try to, to take in our own hands what you've already appointed. You numbered our breaths. You know how many we're going to take. And we're going to stand before you when this is done. The point is, Lord... That when we view that threshold, may we not view it with great fear, but rather with great anticipation, because we are seeing the one we love, our first love. And in that, Lord, please, even tonight, please speak to us in this area as well. Lord, that we would not just live well, but we would die well. And so here we are with yours, Lord. May we live our life resurrected, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.